Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today to have as my guest Harvard Law Professor Nicholas Stephanopoulos. Uh, Nick is the Kirkland and Ellis Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. He got his um, undergraduate degree from Harvard, Master of Philosophy from Cambridge, Yale Law School, worked for Jenner and Block, clerked for the Ninth Circuit. He is an expert on election law, constitutional law, administrative law, numerous other kinds of law. He's written too many articles to count, but we're here today to talk about his forthcoming book, Alignment, A Theory of Democracy. And I think this is going to really shake things up. Nick, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you have a new book coming out called Alignment, A Theory of Democracy. When's it coming out, by the way? When should people look for it? Uh, 2024. The, the draft is almost done. It's due to the publisher by the end of this year, and it's coming out at some point in 2024. Perfect. So why did you write the book? And if you can kind of, and we're going to oversimplify, of course, in the one hour that we have, but uh, explain its central thesis. Yeah, great. So I wrote the book because I wanted to put in one place a bunch of thoughts that had been scattered across law review articles that I've written uh, over the past few years. Uh, I wanted to, uh, to set forth uh, my, uh, my, my vision, my theory of election law uh, in, in a single book length publication. Uh, so the, the theory in, in a nutshell is that uh, we should organize our election laws in order to promote the democratic value of alignment, uh, by, by which I mean uh, a congruence or a fit between what the government does and what the people want the government to do. Uh, and so there's a, a policy side to this. Uh, we should structure our election laws uh, in ways that facilitate the achievement of alignment. Uh, and there's also a court angle to this, which is that uh, when courts are considering uh, challenges to election laws, uh, the courts should be highly focused on the implications for alignment. If they're dealing with a misaligning electoral regulation, uh, a partisan gerrymander, for example, uh, that's a strong reason in favor of invalidating uh, the rule. Uh, if the courts are confronted with an aligning electoral regulation uh, that's being attacked on some other basis, uh, and lots of campaign finance regulations fall into this category, uh, then I think courts should be uh, generally willing to uh, uphold the measure because of its aligning effect. Uh, and so this is meant to be a sort of uh, you know overarching theory uh, applicable to a very wide range of uh, election law disputes, uh, both inside and outside the courts. Can, can you define misalignment for us, or, or bad alignment, or non-alignment, or whatever the right word is? Yeah, right. So governmental outputs that don't match, that don't reflect uh, people's preferences. Uh, let's say if most people are reasonably centrist in America, and uh, the government's policies are very conservative, for example, uh, that would be an instance of uh, a severe policy misalignment. Um, and, and it actually turns out that uh, misalignment of basically every kind is rampant in modern American politics. Uh, right. Everywhere you look at the local, state, and federal level, uh, you see partisan misalignment. So uh, uh, legislatures whose partisan makeup doesn't reflect the partisan preferences of the people uh, you see representational misalignment, uh, legislators and other elected officials who are usually much more extreme in the policies they hold 
than what voters actually want. Uh, and you also see policy misalignment, uh, again, toward both ideological extremes, uh, but also more frequently in a conservative rather than in a liberal uh, direction. So two questions, one small and narrow and one 35,000 feet. The small and narrow question. So I assume in one example, we have hundreds, I think, or thousands. But one example of, of your theory would be, my understanding is, and if I'm wrong, tell me, North Carolina is basically 50% Republican, 50% Democrat. But the Republican state house is overwhelmingly Republican, legislature is overwhelmingly Republican. And I think, look, reading your book, I, there's, there's two things wrong with that. That's not how elections should be run. That's the first thing. But then the output of that legislature is going to be more Republican than the Democratic-Republican split in the state. Is that, do I have that right? Yeah, exactly. This is a quintessential scenario of misalignment. You have a, a purple state, you know, an evenly divided state where the, the median voter tends to be quite moderate. Uh, but then often because of partisan gerrymandering, you end up with a state legislature that is uh, dramatically skewed in one party's favor or another. So in North Carolina, it's the, the Republicans who are the beneficiaries. Uh, and we often stop at that point. We say, oh, look, there's a mismatch between the partisan makeup of the legislature and the partisan preferences of the people. Uh, and, and one of the book's goals is to move beyond just the partisan lens to say, like, look, once they're elected, politicians uh, vote on bills and those bills become law. Uh, and so the, the Republican misalignment of the North Carolina legislature uh, transforms or, or metastasizes into uh, representational misalignment, you know, representation that's way too conservative for the people of North Carolina. Right. And then all those votes that are being cast in North Carolina turn into laws, they turn into policies that shape people's lives. And again, those policies are more conservative than the people of North Carolina want. Uh, and so we see this trio of partisan and representational and policy misalignment uh, all being driven here uh, by the same partisan gerrymandering as the, as the spur for that. So, so one of the reasons I was really dying to talk to you is I don't hold myself out as an election law expert. That's not who I am. I, I know some stuff about it. Um, but it, it did seem, it does seem to me that too many election law experts stop at the voting stage and don't go on to continue that the, the, the whether, whether they're complaining about partisan misalignment, whatever they're complaining about, they stop at the, at, at the time the election is over, as opposed to saying, how much damage is this going to do afterwards? in terms of misalignment. And your work really does a great job on that. And that's really important, right? Yeah, really all the varieties of, of misalignment that I'm talking about take place after the voting process right. is over. Right. Uh, you know, many aspects of the voting process are, are drivers of the misalignment, but to, to see the misalignment, um, you have to wait until the election is over. And you then look at the, the makeup of the legislature, uh, the bills that are being voted on, and the, the laws that are being enacted. Um, I should note here, you know, Pam Carlin, who I guess was your guest yes. recently, yes. Uh, has a famous typology of the, the values that should matter to us in election law from you know, 20 years ago. Uh, and Pam talks about uh, participation, which is really voting, uh, aggregation, which is how votes are, uh, are summed up and then translated into seats, 
Uh, and then governance, uh, what do elected officials actually do once they're in office? Uh, and so I don't use that exact framework in, in my book, but a lot of what I'm talking about uh, falls into the aggregation and governance buckets that, that Pam laid out years ago. Yeah, I think that's a really strong contribution because, I mean, some people have written about it, but not, not like you're doing. Here's my 30,000-foot question, uh, feet question. And, you know, anybody who listens to this podcast regularly will know why I'm asking this. It strikes me that this country was – now, you know, I'm an anti-originalist. I've written books about originalism, a book about originalism. But there's no reasonable argument the Founding Fathers would have shared this view. They believed in misalignment. They believed that 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 – that really, you know, the rulers should should be the ones doing the ruling, and people send people to government to represent them. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, the Senate, the Electoral College, we can name so many things that that were misaligned from the beginning. So, what do you? And, and our structure is still misaligned: the Senate, the filibuster, the Electoral College, everything. So, how do you justify this to an originalist who would say, "No, Nick, this is." This is our system. Our system is built on misalignment for all the reasons the founding fathers didn't trust political parties and didn't trust really the people. Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd say it's it's true that a lot of the the justification for my alignment theory is non-originalist. Uh, you know, a major driver is democ democratic theory, and uh, you know, my belief. So I have to I have to interrupt. I have to, I have to interrupt. Yeah. Randy Barnett, that, that's a feature, not a bug of your theory, by the way. Randy Barnett once said something about yeah, originalism yeah. that was really famous, that it's a feature, not a bug. The fact that yours is anti-originalist is a feature, or not originalist, is a feature, not a bug, but but go on. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, I'm not trying to be yeah. an originalist yeah. here. I don't I don't profess to be an originalist. And, uh, you know, I, I care a lot about the meaning of democracy, uh, independent of whatever originalists might say. Uh, and so for me, that alignment is very close to the essence of what it means to be a democracy, uh, that carries a whole lot of weight. And, you know, if originalists don't agree, you know, so much the worse for, for them, I would say. Uh, that said, I don't think I need to pick uh, a major fight with, with originalists across the board here. Uh, um, so first of all, uh, if you look at lots of statements made by originalists in the 18th century, uh, by major figures in Reconstruction in the 19th century, uh, there are lots and lots of comments by Madison and Hamilton and John Bingham and others uh, that are very, very close to what I mean by, uh, by alignment. Um, you know, Madison says at the time of the, the original Constitution's drafting, uh, that public opinion should be the master of the government. And, you know, the government can't fail but to heed public opinion. Um, so, you know, of course I agree that uh, the, the framers uh, were not focused on the immediate translation of popular preferences into policy. Uh, that said, they were also very wary of uh, severe misalignment in favor of some particular faction. Right, like a major part of the Constitution's theory was avoiding factionalism, yes. preventing any particular fra uh, faction from dominating. Uh, I read that as a sort of proto commitment to avoiding certain kinds of misalignment. Um, the 
Uh, I'll concede that uh, the framers would have been happy with one kind of misalignment, uh, misalignment away from the views of the uneducated, overly passionate public, uh, uh, so that we get alignment with the virtuous, the far-sighted, the disinterested. That's the one kind of misalignment they favored. Um, but that's not the kind of misalignment we see in American politics, you know, today or historically. We, we see misalignment in favor of uh, the rich, in favor of corporations, in favor of whites, in favor of old people, in favor of one political party rather than another. Uh, and I don't think the framers would have approved. Uh, I think they would have been horrified by all of those kinds of misalignment. Uh, how does... I, I have so many questions. <laughs> I have like 15 questions in my yeah. head. Which, uh, I'll start here, I guess. Uh, on the national level, let's forget the, the, the state and local level for a minute. Just on the national level, how can we ever have, under our current system, a, a real alignment with the Senate the way it is? I mean, I just, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 we have to redefine democracy, I think, to get to a point where, with, where uh, you know, South Dakota has the same power as California. To, to veto and, or pass laws in the Senate, which makes all the difference in the world. Can we ever overcome that? That feels, that feels, then you add the filibuster and it really feels terrible. Uh, yeah, I agree that, that uh, counter-majoritarian features of our federal government uh, are, are frequently misaligning. And so the, the Senate is uh, at the top of that list. The filibuster in the Senate just compounds the problem. Uh, the Electoral College sometimes produces uh, misfires between uh, who the popular vote supports for president and who actually wins the Electoral College. So there, there are some built-in features of our federal government uh, that are often misaligning. Um, I want to stress, you know, often, not always. Uh, so, you know, if you look at the current Senate uh, with a median senator uh, like Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, uh, there's not currently dramatic misalignment between the center of the Senate and the center of American public opinion, like maybe a little bit, but not huge. Um, so it's not inevitable that our, our malapportioned Senate will produce misalignment. Um, it also wouldn't take much. You, know, you add like two new states and you've basically solved the, the, the pro-conservative, pro-Republican bias of the, uh, of the Senate because there, there are some small states uh, that the Democrats win, and there's some big states like Florida and Texas that Republicans win. Um, and so there is a bias, but it's not a, a monumental bias in the Senate. Um, you know, electoral college misfires are uh, extraordinary instances of misalignment when they occur, but they usually don't occur. So, you know, the, uh, the 2020 presidential election was an instance of alignment. The people preferred right. Joe Biden, Joe Biden won. That's the norm. Uh, it's it's just a shame that it's not guaranteed the way that it ought to be under under a better system. Can we uh, so my, my my view on the whole, I think, is that our federal system is unfortunately designed in in multiple respects, uh, and we should try to you know correct those biases if we can. But those biases don't necessitate dramatic misalignment at the federal level all the time. One last question about the Senate, then we'll move on. So so years ago an Atlanta lawyer named Emmett Bondurant, who actually is the person, I think, who argued the two Supreme Court cases the farthest apart. He argued a voting rights case in 1963, and he argued Rucho in 2019, which is really amazing. He's a good friend of mine. 
and I helped him. He challenged the filibuster in the D.C. Uh, in DC uh, federal courts. And I, I wouldn't help him on the merits, but I helped him on standing, and we lost on standing. But one of the reasons Emmett was so fired up um, about that litigation, really, and in addition to representing John Lewis, which is always a treat, um, he, when John was alive, uh, Emmett really believed that the filibuster was as anti-democratic a thing as there possibly could be. Because it could be the case of a Democrat or Republican House, a president on the same, you know, the same political party, you can have, you know, 57 people in the Senate really wanting something to get done, and it can't get done. And, it, and, and I feel like the, 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 the Senate problem is not cured by the mansion medium thing because the filibuster makes it – something has to be so obviously politically okay for it to get passed. Am I overstating the importance of that? Or? Uh, no, I, I completely agree that in certain configurations uh, of, of power in Washington, the filibuster ends up being enormously misaligning. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we just saw the, the classic example of that in 2021, 2022, uh, when a party has control of uh, all three branches. Uh, and when the people want that party to have control of all three branches uh, and the party can't pass popular policies because of the filibuster, um, note that, you know, because of other perversities of the Senate, there are other times when the filibuster is actually aligning. So, you know, repeatedly over the past 30, 40 years, Republicans have controlled the Senate when they received a minority of uh, votes cast for the Senate. Uh, and so in that circumstance, the filibuster has prevented Republican preferred policies from being enacted. Uh, but that's actually an aligning effect because the people didn't want Republicans in control of the Senate. <laughs> right. And the filibuster stopped the Republican, the, the misaligned Republican policies from going into effect. So, you know, when we start with the crazy malapportionment of the Senate, uh, sometimes the filibuster can be a corrective to that. And sometimes the filibuster exacerbates the problem. That's a, that's a fascinating take. I, I like that. Um, all right. Let's get, to, let's get to the courts for a second. So I read your book as suggesting strongly that the Roberts Court has really been a problem when it comes to uh, misalignment. I just want to say that I think Senator Whitehouse's numbers aren't exactly accurate. He, he claimed before the Alabama case this term that every single case that raised political election type stakes since, since the Roberts Court began, the Republicans are undefeated. I think he's wrong about that. But he, I think Republicans are batting about 97%. So the fact that he's off a couple of cases doesn't really matter. So can you go? Can you agree with Senator Whitehouse that the Roberts Court has been a disaster for the political for the electoral process? Yeah, and I wouldn't put it in terms of you know win loss rates for Democrats or Republicans. Okay. I would put it in terms of uh, win loss rates for for the value of alignment. Uh, so you know, the, the the alignment theory says two things to the Roberts Court: uh, if you're confronted with a misaligning electoral practice, you know, a, a severe voting restriction that suppresses the vote, uh, a, a, an extreme partisan gerrymander, uh, strike down that misaligning rule and thereby uh, increase alignment. That's one, that's one prescription. Uh, the other prescription is if you're faced with an aligning electoral rule, uh, the Voting Rights Act, right? Uh, lots of campaign finance uh, regulations, uh, state court rulings that promote alignment, 
in that case, stand back and do nothing. Don't use your power of judicial review. Uh, as the Roberts Court routinely spurns both of those prescriptions. Right. Uh, so one place where uh, misalignment is batting a thousand is with respect to misaligning electoral rules. The Roberts Court has never struck down a voting restriction, uh, and the Roberts Court has never struck down a partisan gerrymander and will never do so, you know, given its holding that the partisan gerrymandering is non-justiciable. Uh, and on the other side of that, the Roberts Court has repeatedly invalidated aligning efforts by other branches. The Roberts Court uh, struck down half of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Roberts Court has limited the other half of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the Roberts Court has struck down one campaign finance rule after another. Uh, and so in all of those respects, we have the Roberts Court being activist, interventionist, uh, in a way that that frustrates the democratic value of alignment also by um you know not so the voter id case the crawford case i find very interesting um this will be a little bit in the weeds for the non-lawyers that listening to this but stay stay with me for a second um so you know um it's it seems it it it, it seems to me that the roberts court really does have i know you don't want to say this but really does have a partisan and one example of that, although Justice Stevens wrote the opinion, is the voter ID case in Crawford, where it feels to me like at least two or three justices wanted to go back in time and overrule cases that called voting a fundamental right to begin with, which is a terrible place to be, obviously. And I, and I hope I hope we're not we're not there. Um, but Roberts Court has continually upheld things that make voting harder and struck down things that make voting easier. Is that fair? Yeah, I think there it's a universal record. Like, I, I yeah. cannot think of a voting restriction. I think there's not one that the Roberts Court has ever struck down. You know, the, uh, the Indiana photo ID law, voter purges uh, in Ohio, uh, various burdens on voting in Arizona, every single one of them gets upheld by the Roberts Court, uh, which I think would say that, I think it would grudgingly concede that earlier cases have held that voting is a fundamental right. But the court would say that it's uh, highly, highly deferential toward any rationale that a state can offer for uh, for restricting voting uh, that's not overtly partisan. So as soon as there is a fig leaf uh, of a justification uh, promoting efficiency, saving money, uh, making election administration more uniform. Uh, you know, preventing non-existent voter fraud. Right. As soon as there's some interest offered, the Roberts Court bows down to it, refuses to look any further. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, if you don't mind, Nick, I'm going to take a minute to tell a story about Crawford that I don't think I've told in my podcast mm -hmm. before, but I might have. Uh, so Crawford is a case from Indiana where Justice Stevens, not, you know, one of the liberal justices, upholds the, the voter ID law. Judge Posner wrote um, the opinion that, that went to the Supreme Court, and I... I I have to talk about Posner once a podcast. That's a rule. Um, and I, I was very close to Posner. And um, anyway, he was telling me during one of our conversations that he got it wrong in Crawford, that he wished he'd had the case back. And at the time, a guy named Mike Sachs had a show called HuffPost Live, which was kind of the first, the first kind of podcasting streaming thing that was, that was around big time. And I got Posner to go on there. And Posner said on, for the public, 
I was wrong in Crawford. I didn't have all the right facts. He blamed a little bit on the lawyers. I don't think that's necessarily true. And then Stevens came out a couple of weeks later and said, yes, I'm with Judge Posner. I was wrong too. I feel that's such a shame. I know the Roberts Court would have overturned a different Crawford decision, but I think that Crawford decision really did dilute the idea that voting requ- voting restrictions require strict scrutiny because they didn't apply strict scrutiny in that case. And so it really had substantial implications. Does that make sense? Yeah, that all makes sense. Um, uh, I, I will say one thing, which is that uh, you know my, my alignment approach is really focused on the empirical evidence. Like right. what do uh, studies tell us uh, about whether different electoral rules uh, increase or decrease, worsen or improve uh, the, the level of alignment. Uh, and even though uh, voting restrictions in principle can be very misaligning, you know, if they, if they actually suppress uh, a fraction of the vote uh, that has distinctive partisan or, or ideological uh, characteristics, um, there's not great evidence that photo ID laws themselves are, are highly misaligning. Okay. Uh, the, the best recent studies find um, really minor partisan racial impacts with photo ID laws. Uh, that's basically because a lot of eligible voters don't have photo IDs, uh, but the, the eligible voters who don't have photo IDs tend to be very sort of checked out uh, uh non-participating people who wouldn't vote one way or the other. So the, so the people whose vote is, is suppressed are basically non-voters. Um, and so I think the motives behind photo ID laws are invidious and, and reprehensible. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit encouraged by the fact that those terrible motives don't seem to be turning into terrible impacts on, uh, on the poor or on minority voters. Um, is that is that true when we take into account all the various ways that some red states are trying to s- stop people from voting? Because that's not just voter IDs. It's not, it's making voting on Sunday harder, which is a huge effect on, on African-American voters or black voters. Um, and, and, you know, Georgia had – in fact, just last week some judge struck down Georgia's ban on providing food and water in line um, to people who are waiting in line. Um, but th- most, of the, most of the states who have voter ID laws have a bunch of other things that make voting harder? Is all, is all of that kind of innocuous, just badly motivated, but not very uh, consequential laws, or is that really making a difference? Yeah, so, so a lot of states like Georgia, yeah. like Florida, like Texas, keep trying and trying yes. and trying to push the envelope, right? Yes. You know, they're, they're not satisfied with just photo ID laws. Uh, they're, they're passing five, 10, 15 new voting restrictions, uh, you know, one omnibus voter suppression uh, law after another. Uh, when you when you look at the evidence on each individual policy, there's not great evidence that any particular element of, of those bundles is is misaligning. So you know, I've seen uh, studies of uh, restrictions to early voting, restrictions to mail-in voting. Those don't seem to have major partisan effects either. Uh, I don't. Once you start accumulating one burden after another after another, I do start to worry that even if no particular provision uh, is all that impactful, the sum total of five or ten or twenty voting restrictions uh, might be more significant. Um, but that is kind of speculative. Like the, the the empirical evidence does not really suggest that uh, the voting restrictions we've seen in the last ten or twenty years 
uh, are are all that uh, effective. Okay, well that that gives me a little bit of hope. <laughs> I hope that I hope the empirical evidence fifty years from now, if we're around fifty years from now, yeah. supports that. Um, can we talk about Rucho for a minute? Because I am, I think, I'm not. I haven't done the. I have not done the empirical work, but I've read a lot of people. I think I'm the only progressive law professor in the country who thinks who who has publicly stated that Rucho was correctly decided. So um, I think I am. I don't think I don't think there's any other public law public liberal who said that. And here's why I think Rucho was rightly rightly decided. And you can tell me why I'm wrong, either based on your theory of alignment or ten other theories you might have. First, as a as an academic enterprise. I really don't like it when judges have to make decisions based on absolutely nothing in the Constitution and nothing, you know, how much is too much gerrymandering. And my friend Emmett, um, you know, who argued that case, he argued the Rucho case and lost, trying to get, you know, hoping for the First Amendment angle. All of that, I'm very against judicial review. So all of that puts too much hands in judges, in my opinion, and will actually probably cause more misalignment if you let judges pick and choose which gerrymandering districts are too much or too little. That's my first argument. My second argument, as a, as a partisan, <laughs> okay, this is conceitedly a partisan argument, but I'm an on-the-ground con law kind of person, so I look at what's happening on the ground. I don't care about theory. I'm with Judge Posner on that. So my worry was, why in the world would liberals want to give the Roberts court this power. I mean, and it, with a court that never rules for Democrats in partisan cases, why would you want to give the Roberts court this power? Oh, my God. So why am I wrong? Uh, so I'll say one thing. I, I think Mike Seidman at Georgetown okay, has good. also made okay, basically good. this argument. You know, Mike is another, you know, uber realist, v- very attentive to, to power dynamics. Yeah, uh, I reviewed on, his and Tushnet's book a long time ago, um, and I asked Mark about it afterwards. He said Mike wrote most of it. I shouldn't say that publicly, but Mark wouldn't mind. Uh, my, I think Mike, both of them are brilliant. Tushnet's my mentor, but I love Seidman. So I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that. That's great. All right, go on. Sorry. Yeah, so I guess res- responses to those arguments. I mean, first of all, I think they have a lot of weight. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm deeply skeptical of the Roberts Court, and, and I'm deeply worried that uh, if you give the Roberts Court any new tool, uh, it, it would use that tool in a, in a partial, partisan way. You know, in a way that that Republican litigants, conservative litigants win, uh, and somehow Democratic litigants don't. Um, I'll say though, uh, um, on, on the other hand, I mean, so the the main argument I think for for judicial intervention here is really normative and theoretical, not not practical. It's it's you know, it's, it's the classic John Hart Ely argument. Um, partisan gerrymandering is deeply undemocratic. It's more misaligning than basically any other electoral practice in modern American politics. Uh, and often there's no non-judicial route to stop it. You know, if, if you look at a place like North Carolina or Wisconsin, there's no voter initiative. Obviously the state legislators elected from the gerrymandered districts are not going to fix the problem. Uh, at least in North Carolina now, the state courts are just as uh, partisan and, 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 and hackish as the politicians. Uh, so they're not going to change anything. Uh, and so, you know, unelected federal courts uh, who aren't a product of that same gerrymandered, distorted political system, you know, as a, as a normative and theoretical matter, may sometimes have some ability to, to police the redistricting process uh, in a way that no other actor can. 
Uh, and at least in the lower courts, there was some evidence for this. So, you know, I was, I was deeply involved in litigating Ruscio and, and Whitford beforehand. And we kept winning the votes of Republican appointed judges uh, in the lower courts. Uh, I think there were three, three of the six judges on the two panels were Republican appointees. And two of those three judges ultimately ruled in, in our favor in, uh, in Whitford and Ruscio. Uh, so I think there is some capacity for at least some federal judges to put aside partisanship and, uh, and strike down a gerrymander, even one that benefits their, their side. Um, we've even seen this in state Supreme Courts. You know, the, uh, the New York Supreme Court, uh, dominated by Democrats, struck down a democratic partisan gerrymander just this past year. Uh, same thing in Ohio, the Ohio Supreme Court with a Republican majority struck down one after another after another Republican gerrymander in, in Ohio. Uh, so, you know, it might just be that the nine justices on the Roberts Court are more, un are unfortunately less objective, more partisan than, than many other judges around the country. But, um, but it's not a universal phenomenon. You know, some judges, even many judges, are able to put aside personal ideology and partisanship and consider the evidence fairly uh, and strike down gerrymanders that, uh, that have documented extreme effects. I, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I guess I feel this is more constitutional theory, but how it plays out on the ground. I guess I'm just skeptical of the, the federal courts. You mentioned the two state, state Supreme Courts. I'm completely in favor of state Supreme Court review of state partisan maps. That I'm totally in. I don't think that's a non. I think North Carolina Supreme Court unfortunately said it was non-justiciable in North Carolina. That's a mistake. I have no issue of state courts doing it because every state court in the country is either elected or kind of elected, except Rhode Island, I think. And but I guess the, the, the big point I want to make to you about all this is Congress could change this in theory. Congress regulates the time, place, and manner of elections, right? So, I mean, if they want to. So, so, so there is a political fix here which seems really far away in the real world, so that's not an argument I usually like to make. But, you know, I go on this issue, just this one, maybe a couple others, I go back to what Tubin kind of said about the Supreme Court, which is we get the Supreme Court we deserve, and I kind of feel like that's true about Congress too. I, I just, I don't know how many large-scale problems, there's no question partisan gerrymandering to me and to you, it's a huge national issue. When we have these huge national issues, Really, how often has the Supreme Court done something good? Don't If you cite me Brown, I'll say no, that wasn't the court at all. Brown was ineffectual and the Congress got involved. Um, Same-sex marriage is the exception, but I think it gave us Trump, so I'm not sure where that balance is. Um, but, I mean, Congress could change this, right? So, why do you, so, what, so let's go to Congress and change this. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. One is that uh, I, I, I agree, congressional action you know, laying down a, a uniform yeah. national policy against gerrymandering uh, will be much more efficient, much more effective uh, than even a, a real partisan gerrymandering legal claim with, with real teeth. You, you've right. got to litigate those claims. They take forever. Even if you win a claim, you have to fight over remedies. You go state by state by state. Uh, a, a sweeping national rule is much better than, than all of that. Um, 
you know, I, ideally you get both. You'd have uh, you know judicial policing of, uh, of of outliers that are somehow enacted, and you'd also have a national legislative policy. Uh, uh, in terms of you know, has the court ever succeeded uh, at, at affecting significant pro democratic change in in this particular area of distortions due to redistricting? There is one resounding triumph, right? Sure. Uh, in the 1960s, there was rampant malapportionment across America uh, that was strangling urban and suburban majorities in state after state. Uh, legislatures wouldn't fix it. Congress wouldn't do anything. Uh, the Warren court stepped in, said one person, one vote. And within basically three years, like 1964 to 1966 or 67, uh, eliminated the the generations old problem of malapportionment uh and that dramatically improved alignment in uh in state legislatures and state governments across america uh so you know i i'm i'm with you on on brown on same-sex marriage being very complicated stories uh one person one vote though is is basically a story of the warren court stepping in ending a huge democratic distortion really quickly uh, and and uh, you know substantially improving the the quality of democracy in America. Um, that said, you know we we don't live in the era of the Warren Court right right. now, and, and, and partisan <laughs> gerrymandering pre presents some complications that that aren't there with uh, with malapportionment. Uh, for Congress, you know Congress members of Congress are often the beneficiaries of gerrymandering. So you know good luck ever getting a right. ban on partisan gerrymandering out of a Republican House like the one we have right now. Uh, you know, they're they're more likely to you know entrench gerrymandering right. than to than to try right. to ban gerrymandering. Right. Um, there is you know a kind of fortunate cleavage that's emerged in in recent politics where uh, redistricting reform, pro democratic reform, has kind of miraculously become a pillar of the Democratic Party platform uh, in a way that it hasn't really been at any point in in memory. Uh, that, well, hold on, hold on, Nick. That, that, uh, Nick, that's my point. Hold on, but that—that's my point. When the court interfered, if the court had interfered in Rucho, you wouldn't have that in that Democratic Party platform. It wouldn't be there. That could be, and and I would rather. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, in that case, then I think Rucho might be, you know, kind of perversely a long-term victory. If if Rucho polarized the Democratic Party and convinced the Democratic Party of the value of federal intervention. Uh, then, then Rucho will actually be a win, not not a loss. Yeah. Um, I'll point out that you, know, you 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 talked about how far congressional intervention seems right now. Um, we came so close though in in 2021, 2022, right? The the House Democratic House in those two years passed a series yeah. of omnibus election law bills that would have mandated redistricting commissions, uh, impose a quantitative partisan bias ceiling for congressional district maps. It would have revamped voting. It would have instituted public financing for elections. It would have uh, required stricter campaign finance disclosure. Um, it's, it's amazing how many good aligning measures were, were in those bills. Um, and they also even almost passed the Senate, right? The Senate came two votes away from eliminating the filibuster for uh, democracy legislation. Right. So I actually see those developments. You know, it's it's a it's a terrible shame they didn't they didn't pass. Uh, but I'm now convinced the next time Democrats have 
uh, a slightly more robust majority in Washington, um, they're going to pass the most important set of voting reforms in American history, more important than the Voting Rights Act, more important than the 1970s campaign finance reforms, all of that. Right. And, and that, I think, is also going to be, in the long run, the story of Roe and Casey as well. So, you know, I, I so again, I'm biased. I, I, I'm known as a strong critic of judicial review in the court. Not, I mean, I, I would have little judicial review, but not what we have. But, you know, I, I've been arguing for 30 years as someone who is radically pro-choice, you know, who was pro-choice when I was 13, listening to my mother talk about friends of friends dying in alleys from back alley abortions when I was 13. I'm radically pro-choice. But over the last 30 years, I've been saying Roe and Casey do more harm than good for every issue liberal cares about, liberals care about except abortion. And on abortion, it didn't do that much because rich women could still get them. You know, and you know, you know the argument. Rucho, 50 years from now, might be exactly the same, which, I, which, would, which would make me, if I'm still around, which I probably won't be, <laughs> have a great I told you so to everybody. Because I really think most of the time political problems have to be solved by politics, not by the court. Maybe one person, one vote is an exception. But I have one last question about that case, um, and then we'll move on to money and elections, and that'll take us to the end of the podcast. Um, on, on, on. By the way, Emmett argued Westbury, Westbury versus Sims. That was his case. That was mm-hmm. um, that, that, that case involved one person, one vote in the South. Anyway, um, what I want to ask you is: I know this is not what you like talking about, or this is not your wheelhouse, but I can find no theory of constitutional inter- interpretation I can live with. That justifies the goodness of Baker versus Carr, because I, I mean, of, I mean, of Reynolds versus Sims, because I believe one person votes the right idea. Um, but I can find no theory of constitutional interpretation that gets us that case that can't be and hasn't been wildly abused in the day since. That amount of because there's nothing in the uh, Constitution suggesting one person one vote. Nothing. Well, certainly originalism is not going to get you one right. person, one vote. Right. And uh, respect for precedent is not going to get right. you one person, one vote since that, you know, that, that was an entirely new right. claim in the 1960s. Um, I think what gets you there is John Hart Ely political process theory, which is you know, part of why it's, it's near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm with you that on, on most substantive matters, I'm, I'm very skeptical and nervous about judicial intervention. Uh, I would rather see uh, you know the, the the typical controversial issue addressed through the the, the ordinary political process. Um, uh, you know, for me, electoral matters are different because of their kind of unique ability to distort the very political process that I would otherwise have my my faith in. So you know, the the trouble with solving gerrymandering or voter suppression uh, through the political process is that those activities distort and bias the political process in a way that benefits the vote suppressors and the and the gerrymanders right like you know for uh, uh with, with malapportionment it went on for for a century uh and the political process could do nothing about it you needed some actor uh, outside the political process to step in um you know so so the 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 first half of, of political process theory dealing with electoral malfunctions and the need for some non electoral actor to correct those malfunctions, uh, to me is deeply persuasive and and gets you the result in Reynolds v. Sims and doesn't get you a lot of bad results, I don't think. Um, the second half of Ely, where he talks about you know distortions due to prejudice, I think the theory kind of goes off the rails and I, I don't really buy any of that. But right. the, the first half with like insiders 
controlling the process and making it impossible to to oust them. Uh, and you need you need somebody outside politics to to fix that problem. Um, that part I think is is a very persuasive theory. If we had more time, I would ask you about Tushnet's critique of Ely, which I always thought was pretty devastating, but we don't, so I won't. Um, I want to move on to money in, money in elections, because that's something a lot of people talk I'll about. Say, I'll say, in, in, in a sense, I'll say Tushnet, I think, is right, but it's not devastating. I okay, fair enough. My, my fair, okay. fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. I want to ask you about money in elections and Citizens United, but before I do, I want to, I want to say this. I want to make sure people don't misunderstand me, because I, <laughs> I don't want this to be aggregated in a negative way. I think the McCutcheon case, for example, where a, a, a person in Alabama writes a check to a politician in California and does nothing other than write, give him money through this check, I, and, and that violated some federal law, and the court struck down the law down. Um, I think that's one of the worst cases ever decided. I don't think writing a check is speech. I think writing a check facilitates speech, um, but it's not speech itself. And the, I know you agree, the whole court view on corruption is so stupid. Um, but, but, so I want to make, I want to get down the table. Now, back to Citizens United. When Hillary Clinton made a opposition to Citizens United a litmus test, I was so angry and so upset. Of course, I voted for her anyway, but I was so angry and so upset because um, I don't, I, Citizens United had to be right as a result. It just has to be. It was a, it was a, a prior restraint on political speech, a political movie criticizing Hillary, and the government says you can't distribute it. That, that's the clearest constitutional violation since Brown and, Ob- and Obergefell, I think. Um, now, the holding about cor- the, the broad holding is terrible. I agree with that. But don't you think the result in Citizens United is correct? How, how can we possibly censor a political movie in this country? Yeah, so, so my view on, on, on campaign finance uh, through the alignment perspective yeah. is yeah. that uh, we need to be really attentive to uh, um, how is money in politics when it's not checked uh, breeding misalignment? Uh, and then to what extent are different checks of money in politics able to uh, stop those misaligning forces and, and thereby promote alignment? Uh, so the, you know, the, the, the video, the movie produced by a single uh, ideological uh, group like Citizens United, um, poses no serious misaligning threat. Uh, and so I don't think there would be an alignment-based rationale for, for terminating that particular kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does pose uh, a, a major misaligning threat uh, is the unchecked campaign spending by wealthy individuals, uh, super PACs, uh, some, although not most corporations, you know, most public corporations are actually not that politically active uh, through spending. It's, it's primarily uh, some private corporations like, you know, Coke Industries and, and others that are, that are active in this way. Uh, but so that kind of money by wealthy individuals and by certain corporations um, can be very misaligning because uh, these entities have clear ideological goals uh, you know, usually they're, they're uh, pro-conservative uh, goals. And uh, the, the people, the, the politicians who benefit from their spending uh, tend to either take uh, sincerely or to insincerely take um, ideological stances that those big spenders will find congenial. Uh, and so, uh, you know, unchecked uh, uh, spending by highly ideological actors 
is one of the significant drivers of misalignment in our system. Uh, and so I therefore think that uh, uh, governmental regulations that try to limit uh, that and only that money in politics that's misaligning uh, can be defended on an alignment basis. Uh, and so the particular facts of Citizens United don't satisfy those criteria. Uh, but when Sheldon Adelson gives, you know, $100 million uh, or spends $100 million on behalf of Republican candidates, that absolutely satisfies the, the criteria. Or, or know, Leonard Leo having $1.4 billion to do it. And I'm convinced that, uh, you know, that, that I think both contributions to and expenditures on behalf of candidates uh, have those same uh, misaligning uh, 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 possibilities. Uh, so I don't buy the, you know, the, the, the fundamental cleavage in campaign finance law is between contributions and expenditures, where uh, the government is allowed to regulate contributions, but not expenditures. Uh, from my perspective, the misaligning effect is the same, whether Sheldon Adelson writes a check directly to Trump or spends the same amount or more through a super PAC on behalf of Trump. Uh, and so if the misaligning effect is the same, then I think the, the legal and the political analysis should be the same as well. Yeah, I, that's a great, I, I, I agree. All right, I saved my, my biggest, largest question for last. We have about 10 minutes left at most. Um, <laughs> I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this because it hit me about 30 minutes ago while I was talking to you. So here, here's, here's, I think, a question a lot of people will be interested in hearing how alignment theory deals with. I'm looking at America today, like right now, and what I see is, I, you know, I know that I've done some research on this, but let's say 35% of the American people, that's a high number, I think, strongly support Donald Trump. I don't think that's probably the right number, but let's, let's be generous and say it's 35%. And maybe another 10% vote Republican every time, no matter what. doesn't matter if the devil's on the ticket, they're voting Republican. But it does seem to me that there are 60 to 70% of Americans who really hate this man who never want to see him in politics again. And we can't get it done. Like we can't, you know, we, I mean, the courts might do it through the criminal process. But as far as the electoral process goes, we are so misaligned that that, you know, 40, 30, 40% minority of people can totally devastate our, our, our national elections. Because if we didn't have to worry about Trump, I think we could have a real election this time. I think even DeSantis, as much as I hate him, is willing to talk issues and probably doesn't lie as he speaks. Maybe he does, but but Trump, there's no going there. There's no going to any policy debate. How, 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 I assume your theory explains this in some way and, and, can, and, and can solve it in some way because we are in a terrible place where, where, where a demagogue can get 30% and muck up the entire system. Well, I think that the, the demagogue getting 30 or 35% uh, – you know, only matters if if that support is able to then win him the presidency. It did. Uh, you, you you only get misalignment. Right, right. You, you only get misalignment if uh, the the median person doesn't want Donald Trump to be president, and yet Donald Trump ends up being elected president. But that's our current uh, state. Right? That yeah. happened in twenty sixteen. Yeah, yeah. 20, so twenty sixteen, uh, a quintessential case of massive misalignment fueled by the electoral college. Yeah. Right. Like Hillary wins the popular vote substantially. But because Trump wins a handful of, uh, of of swing states by by very narrow margins, he ends up winning the presidency. Um, yeah, a, 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 an obvious prescription of alignment theory 
is that uh, the, the best option would be a, a national popular vote where there's, uh, there's no possibility of the minoritarian candidate being elected. Uh, if you can't have that for constitutional reasons, if every state chose to allocate its presidential electors uh, in proportion to the, the share of the vote that every candidate receives, uh, you again wouldn't get outcomes like, uh, like 2016. Um, so you know, here there's a non-constitutional solution. You know, yeah. every state could just pass a law allocating its electors proportionately. Um, I even think that maybe Congress could induce or pressure states to do this. I think there could be some federal role too uh, in, in getting states to, to switch from winner well, why take would small all state, Why would small states uh, ever do that? What's the motivation for small states doing that? Uh, it's it's not really small versus big. You know, uh, the uh, the weird thing right now is that the, the system favors close states, or or the, the the states that are really affected aren't the smaller big ones. It's just the it's just the close states, the purple ones, where all of the electors happen to go to to one side or another based on small differences in in the vote. Um, you know, if uh, every um, every Republican in a small Democratic state should support proportionate allocation of electors right, right. And, and, and vice versa for Democrats in, in small Republican states. Uh, you know, every Democrat in Texas should support proportionate allocation of electors, and so should every Republican in, in California. Uh, you know, but regardless, if the states themselves don't want to do this, I, I could see a federal role in trying to uh, induce the states to do this. Um, you know, if, if it's true, as you were saying, that uh, a majority of Americans just never want to have Trump as president again, then we don't really have to worry unless we end up in the 2016 situation again with, with very narrow pluralities in, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania actually preferring Trump. Um, so I'm kind of optimistic that as long as Trump's support is at 35%, it's easy to exclude a 35% candidate from national office. Uh, it gets a lot harder to exclude a 47, 48, 49% candidate from elect from, from national office, uh, given the perversities of our of our state by state system. Am I wrong that that I mean Biden won a number of swing states by a really small number? I mean it's not wasn't just, I mean so I I think that's that feels dangerous to me that, that Biden won a lot of purple. You agree. Okay. Nick, this has been wonderful. The book is alignment, a theory of democracy it will be out in 2024, but Nick has written a thousand. I'm exaggerating, but too many law review articles to count. You can see a lot of his work there. I recommend it. He's also on Twitter. I'm not sure how active you are, but you are on Twitter. So you can find him there. Um, Nick, I've learned so much from your book and from this, this podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. It was my pleasure. It was a really terrific discussion. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.